Driving in this morning was beautiful weather. Uh, like the rest of the week, they've been forecasting rain and getting it wrong, which is okay with me. Um, but I, I, I like the lack of traffic. I didn't like hitting every red light, and I, had, I realized how dangerous that is, driving in with low traffic and a lot of red lights. When you're thinking about your sermon, I'm fairly sure I stopped for all the red lights. So I got here. Here I am. The parable we're looking at today, I'm kind of calling it the non-parable or the mini-parable because unlike the other parables, it doesn't actually have a story. It has a teaching and an explanation, which makes it a little bit unusual and quite short. I'd also like to sort of um, relate this to, I presume a lot of us have seen the Star Wars movies or Lord of the Rings. The passage we're looking at now is pretty much dead center in the Gospel of Matthew, which means that there's as much of the story he's telling before it as there is after it. So it's a little like going into one of the, not just the Star Wars movie in general. There's a debate about which order you should watch them and all that, but we're going into one scene in the middle of one movie, which is a bit hard to understand sometimes. So we're going to wind back a little bit further to the beginning of Matthew chapter 15, verse 1, rather than just looking at the parable, which is from verses 10 to 20, because we need to go back a few verses to see what the story is or the context of the story that Jesus is going to be teaching about. So I'll read the passage now, but it's a bit longer than um, the label may have suggested. So we're in Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into your mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of your mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. 
But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Did not you see that whatever goes into the mouth passes through the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For what comes out of the heart, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defiles a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So when going back to the beginning of the passage, I wanted us to start off working through these, these verses by looking at some of the things that we, we hear about quite a lot when we're reading things in the New Testament, but they're maybe not things which are too familiar to us. The top of this list is the Pharisees. Sorry, there was one other thing I wanted to do. We didn't have a story in this parable, so I did a little research and I tracked down another parable. I'm just going to read this. You can pull a copy of this off your chat. There should be a PDF. Hopefully you can read a PDF with this on there. You don't need to read along, but you can have a copy for later. And it's also got the texts I'm referring to in this sermon. And he called them together and said, traditions about being clean are like soccer games. There was a derby match between rivals FC United of Nazareth and Sporting Jerusalem. Nazareth played a strong attacking game against Jerusalem and their disciplined defense. The game remained goalless, a goalless draw into the second half. Peter, Nazareth's left winger, saw an opportunity to cross the ball to James, who, realizing Peter's plan, sprinted past the back line to receive the ball. Getting the ball down and turning, James used his first touch to set up a sweet strike that drove the ball into the top corner beyond the fingertips of Gamaliel. The Jerusalem defenders all immediately raised their hands and turned to the officials, looking for a flag, which they found raised and the goal was disallowed. Peter, however, was furious and uttering insults about how the officials were corrupting the game, he started striding towards the center ref. But his teammates held him back saying, wait, bite your tongue, we can still win. Can't you see he's reaching for his back pocket and will surely send you away and you will not return and leave us a man down. Then one of the disciples asked, we don't understand the teaching. No, you don't, replied the teacher. You've been playing this game since before you could walk and you still don't understand the offside rule. And because Peter did not understand, he became angry and committed a much more serious offense. The rules do not make the game beautiful, only the players do. It comes from a highly uh, dubious source. It's probably not a very old parable. 
In fact, it's quite a modern parable. And the reason why I wanted to use it as an example is because if you play soccer, it hopefully made sense. But if you're, if you're more in, on the hockey side of the country or uh, there's other sports or sports are not of interest at all, you might get some of the points in the explanation, but the story is a bit of a blur. It's not clear at all. And that's what we need to do with a lot of things in the Bible, is to go back, check the context, find out what it originally meant to the, the people who were listening. And that's what we want to do now with those first nine verses before the parable. So one of these, um, one of these pieces of the context that is, is very important here, and we don't really talk about very much, are the Pharisees. So let's go through a few things quite quickly, I hope, about who were these Pharisees. The Pharisees are not the Joker's henchmen. They actually have names. They were one of the four active Jewish groups in the first century. In other words, during the time leading up to, during Jesus' ministry and during the early church. So they were one of the four groups. The other groups were the Essenes, the Zealots, and the Sadducees. Zealots and Sadducees are mentioned a little bit in the New Testament. I don't think the Essenes ever are, but they're quite well known through archaeology. You could include a fifth group in that, the Christians. Only the Christians and the Pharisees survived past the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem in general in, in the year 70. The Pharisees were not priests. In fact, they had a habit of telling the priests how to do their job, so they didn't get along terribly well with the priests. They were a lay movement. In other words, they were ordinary people, not clergy, as we would say nowadays. They were they were um, a, a, a Reformation movement within Israel, which came about during the Greek and later Roman occupation of the country. And that's quite important because of the priorities they had and what they were worried about. They were very interested as a lay, um, a movement of the people in how do we practice the application of God's commandments in everyday life. They were adversaries of the Sadducees. The Sadducees were elite. They were not coming out of the ordinary people. They were coming out of the, the wealthy, the people who were controlling. Um, and that was not the Pharisees' background, who were popular with the people and generally felt and probably were much more in touch with the people. They were almost democratic. They were very interested in education. And the challenge of practicing that education underneath occupying governments, both Greek and Roman and later Roman, who were not completely aligned with their goals of education. Does this sound familiar? It doesn't sound a huge difference from our priorities as West Coast. And they were definitely interested in actively practicing faith 
Um, and how do you practice faith when that might um, conflict with the beliefs of um, the local government? And this, in fact, was one of the reasons why Jesus used parables. One of the reasons is that if Romans hear stories being told about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, or any other kingdom that doesn't belong to Caesar, it sounds rather like something rebellious. So parables were a useful way of talking about something that sounded a lot like a soccer game. Um, the end result is if you're standing beside a Roman soldier when you heard that other parable I told, they'd go, oh yes, I, I was at that game, I saw it, it was, it was a travesty. The um, Pharisees were a fairly large group. Uh, Josephus, a historian and uh, a military man of that time, describes uh, there being about 6,000 Pharisees at the time of the fall of Jerusalem in 70. Now, he's probably talking about the, uh, the very uh, core group of Pharisees. There were probably several times that in addition who were also supporting and sympathetic with Pharisees. Pharisees became the um, core of rabbinic Judaism. So their scholars ended up writing uh, sermons called Targum. Uh, they wrote the Mishnah and they wrote the two Talmuds, which became the written down traditions that are foundational to modern Judaism. Uh, they are known to have had significant um, conversions, co uh, converts to Christianity, not the least of which would be Paul, one of the principal authors of the New Testament. And they had the greatest interaction with Jesus during his ministry, both positive and negative. He was invited to have dinner with Pharisees on a number of occasions, and there's even record of Pharisees warning him of danger up ahead. But as I mentioned, um, there's, a, there's a lot of interest in how do we apply the commandments of God through traditions? How do we make traditions? And these traditions take the, um, the commandments and to some extent, turn them into something which can be measured. So it's a bit like taking spirituality, taking biblical spirituality, and turning it into project management. Because you cannot tell how you're doing in a project unless you have set goals which you can measure. So as much as goals are a good thing, and projects do fall apart if you don't use them, maybe it's not the best way of thinking about spirituality and trying to measure things in the same way we would with a project. But it could sound like a good idea when you're starting off with it. And this was definitely a direction that the Pharisees pursued. Another way of looking at what was going on is, um, the Pharisees did represent, just as Jesus and his disciples represented, a lively reform, reforming um, force within Judaism in the first century. 
they both saw things needed to change. They wanted to see revival and renewal, so we have those three R's. Reformation, revival, and renewal. But the renewal, revival, and reformation that was going on with Jesus was not fully matched in what happened with the Pharisees. They did not have the revelation of Jesus, and they did not have the resurrection of Jesus. So we have five R's now. It's about as good as I could get with alliteration. But if we go through the um, history of the church, and I recommend doing this, if, if we made a, a series of movies about the Reformation revival renewals in the history of the church from John the Baptist on, we'd also have much longer series than Star Wars, Harry Potter, and James Bond put together. But it would be a very interesting series, and I really strongly encourage you during COVID and all the opportunities we have to um, read or watch, uh, watch programs about history. This is the time to be looking into this, and I'll, I'll throw out a few ideas for you here. Some of the renewals and revivals that went on through history, sorry, of, of these renewals and revivals within the church, any, any of them have a mixture of... Um, there's, there's a charismatic component of some kind in there. The spirit is active. It's not pure reforming, changing the rules. If you go back to the Desert Fathers, so going back to the third century, these are the guys in Egypt who took very seriously the fact that um, in, the, in the latter part of a couple of Gospels, it says in greater signs than this, you're going to be doing. So they got on with greater signs. Their stories are amazing. They basically invented monks. Monks are an Egyptian invention, not a European invention. Francis and Claire were very charismatic and missionary. This is in the 12th to 13th century. Hildegard is another um, one to look at. She's a 13th century um, nun. She's very charismatic, and she wrote a theology of music. And in the, um, a few years later, in 2010, she was uh, named a doctor of the church because of her significant contribution to the development of our theology today. Beguins and Beggards are a social reformation movement of lay people. They didn't go into convents and, and um, um, cloisters. They stayed outside of that. They stayed in the world. And uh, this, this was a, an active movement, particularly in the Netherlands and, and Germany through the 13th to 16th century. And then there's all kinds of um, revivals, reformations, and renewals that are probably more familiar, ranging from Methodism with its charismatic social reforms and missionary activities in the 19th century, Welsh revivals, and Azusa Street revivals. But the point is, all of these revivals and renewals did reformation, but they also had a very strong activity of the spirit in them. Despite all of the best intentions of the Pharisees for reform, 
I don't see much evidence of this kind of uh, activity of the Spirit in what they were doing. Let's move on to commandments, traditions of the elders. Commandments simply are, uh, in this context, are things which are in the law. They're, they're commandments of God in Scripture. When they're talking about this in the, uh, in the Gospels, they are also talking about the Old Testament. Teaching of the elders was also important, and it continues to be important today. Traditions are unavoidable. To, to, to try and believe that you can have a, an a-traditional or a non-traditional approach is a little bit um, of a misconception. You can be anti-traditional, but ironically, and very much like this particular parable, by becoming an anti-traditional group or whatever, you've created your own tradition. So it's a bit of a, it's a, a catch-22. Traditions turn up in um, all kinds of forms, in the church and in, in our culture. How we deal with baptisms is very much traditions of the elders. Right down to, is the water supposed to be cold? The format of a worship service, even if it's not liturgical, is a tradition. We, we, we create um, forms that, that are working. We, we have good reasons for doing this. The elders have good reasons for doing, for choosing the way to do things. How we deal with communion, uh, what style of bread we use, whether we use wine or grape juice. These are all traditions of the elders. They're not, they're, they're not trivial. They're, they're done for good reasons, but they are not on the same level as the commandments of God. Mother's Day would be a good example of a uh, tradition. And to stick with the soccer theme, singing Boundary Road at the beginning of a Whitecaps game. A large part of our theology um, has been built on the shoulders of those who came before us. Um, everyone from God's workshop on up does theology. It's important that we do it as well as we're individually able to. Um, if our traditions become layers wrapped in, wrapping around Scripture, then we run the risk of obscuring Scripture. If we build our traditions, our teaching of the elders, beside Scripture, then they work in parallel to implement. They don't hide. And, and this is how um, the, the, the centuries of careful thinkers and leaders in the church have built what we understand today as Christians. It wasn't as clearly understood for the people in the New Testament. They were experiencing it and spending the rest of their lives and their successors' lives working out what some of these amazing things meant. But they did not wrap their traditions so that they obscured the revelation they were receiving. They built the traditions 
the doctrines that we've learned besides scripture. So how does this challenge us? Now we've got through the first nine verses and looked at some of these things. So let's get down to the short parable. Actually, we're not quite there yet. We're still looking at one other thing. Um, I did think when I was reading through this that the, the reference to honor your father and mother might be a uh, link to Mother's Day. But unfortunately, that's a bit of a rabbit hole. If we, if we go down that, then we're taking a tradition and we're, we're then using scripture to support the tradition rather than letting the scripture speak for itself. But Jesus' response to the Pharisees' question does not answer the question whatsoever. He comes back with, with an amazing slam. The, the counterattack is really very clear because he's gone from a question that the Pharisees brought in about their traditions to bringing that up a significant notch to say, well, you're not following the commandments of God. So, how does that work? And then he goes on to show that by using your traditions, you've wrapped scripture with things which are hiding the commandment, and you're invalidating the commandment. So actually, what you're doing, which he'll stress later, is you're defiling yourself by the way you're doing this. So your question about what my disciples are doing is a little bit irrelevant because what you're doing is, is more significant. And then he refers them to Isaiah, who they would have known extremely well. It was possibly the most or the second most um, favored book at the time. It was, it was very well known to everybody. Remember, there was no TV, there was no internet. They knew this stuff, it was memorized. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. It's, uh, it's right on. So this comes to what's going on here. Jesus' Jesus' reaction to the Pharisees is extremely strong. It is much stronger than his interaction with um, more one-on-one -on -one individuals. This comes to accountability. And accountability is very important, even though we kind of talk about it, but um, it's, it's, not, it's not one of the more uh, uh, popular subjects. Position has a huge impact on accountability. For us, Accountability when we work with scripture changes as we go from sitting at home. So your discussion of this, of this material uh, over coffee or over lunch does not have the same level of accountability as me standing up here. So and I'm very aware of that. Cell groups, the cell groups we use in the church are a very important place because they are in the middle. They are still safe. 
the, the kind of accountability there is much more comfortable than standing behind a lectern. You have the opportunity to express a lot of what you're thinking, talk to each other, go over it, correct each other. But the, the danger of making a mistake and passing that mistake on to many people is not there. So homes and cell groups are important because the demands of accountability are not there. We know um, because of social media that accountability has become a very popular and um, fashionable thing to take people to task with on the internet. I think the reverse is also true. We need to be very careful what we do on the social media because we are also accountable. That is one of the places where everybody, even though we probably don't reach the hundreds of thousands we like to think we do when we tweet something, we still do potentially reach a lot more people than at home or in our house group. So Jesus, strong and very, um, very stark reaction to uh, the Pharisees is because he is holding them accountable because they do know their material and they should know better. And they are talking to a lot of people. They were very popular among the people in Israel. So they were held accountable for that, um, that uh, popularity. Um, Now we have the non-parable, and there is one little verse in here. This is the hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. And then the disciples came to him, and they said, do you know that the Pharisees were offended by this saying? I... I really quite enjoy little verses like this because I, I can never quite decide if Matthew has this incredible sense of humor. Um, the, the, the disciples, were they that thick that they were actually going to him with a question and say, by the way, did you know you offended the Pharisees? Um, yeah, I, I just... And Jesus doesn't answer the question, so he either sees it as rhetorical or gives them a look which is not described by, by Matthew. Jesus definitely did say quite a lot of things which conflicted with the Pharisees. It wasn't just this. One of the phrases that comes up in a number of places is, you have been taught, but I teach you. For the Pharisees, who were very... Um, happy that they had built schools, they had built groups of people who studied together and came to carefully crafted conclusions. It was exacerbating, to say the least, to have one individual show up and say, but I teach you. It's, and the annoying part was, he seemed to be right. But he wasn't even showing up and saying, our school, the, the Nazareth school or the Galilee school, is saying this, it was, I teach you. That was just exacerbating for the Pharisees. 
But he then goes on to say some other things about, to, to the disciples about this. He goes on to say, every plant my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. This is going back to the weeding stories that we've heard about in some of the other parables. But it's also a really interesting response because he goes on to say, let them alone, they are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Among other things, to me, this is very reminiscent of Gamaliel's response uh, later on in Acts when some of the disciples, some of the um, early church members are brought in front, of the, in, front, in front of the Sanhedrin. And this is in Acts chapter 5, where he says, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do to these men. That's the disciples. Because they, the, the Sanhedrin initially is wanting to, um, to kill them. And he gives a couple of reasons. Then it concludes with, So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this understanding is of men, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Um, so we don't have the... Um, the vision and the, the uh, inspiration of Jesus when he is responding to groups like the Pharisees. So his comment that these, these things will be rooted out is well worth taking into our, um, our daily types of responses that um, it's not our job to root out all the weeds. We need to be careful about rooting out weeds because the fact that somebody is, is annoying doesn't guarantee that they're not speaking the truth. Um, Gamaliel is also a very interesting character. This is one of the approximately two places that he's mentioned in the New Testament. He comes across as a very wise member of the Sanhedrin but he was also Paul's teacher. If we look a little bit more into Gamaliel, he turns out to be somebody who's quite well known. He's a Pharisee. He was on the Sanhedrin, which is the, uh, the religious law court. He's the grandson of Hillel. Hillel is one of the founders of the Pharisees and was the founder of the school of Hillel, which, is one of, which was probably the dominant school of Pharisee um, scholarship that ended up and ended up creating the Mishnah and uh, the Talmuds. He's also known in um, early Christian traditions, and by that I'm talking about traditions that are recorded from the first and second century, third century, that he was also a convert to Christianity. And looking at what he says in um, Acts, kind of sounds like that does make sense. Um, there are modern-day Gamaliels as well. 
two things uh, that are worth looking at. If you're looking for uh, a different movie to watch, which is about modern-day Pharisees, look up one called Footnote. It's a 2011 movie. It's, uh, it's an Israeli movie. It won some international uh, movie uh, film festival awards. It's in Hebrew, but there are subtitles. So, but it's, uh, it's, a, it's a comedy drama, and it's about exactly the kind of thing which is going on in, um, in the context of traditions of the elders, but the story is really about a father-son relationship. There are um, Pharisees or descendants of the Pharisees today, modern ones, who write interesting gems, very challenging gems. One that comes to mind is Abraham Joshua Heschel, who in the 1950s, uh, in uh, a book called God in Search of Man, writes about how modern thinking has, um, has turned learning and study into, into having a goal of control, understanding and control. But he argues that the biblical purpose of learning is to um, support awe and wonder. And that by the modern, uh, the modern world's decline in interest in awe and wonder, and much more interest in control and, un- and understanding, we've lost the ability to worship and have faith. So, Coming out of people in the traditions of the Pharisees, there are still interesting comments that are challenging to us as Christians. Moving on to the interpretation of the parable. Of course, Peter, he always gets blamed for these things. He shows up and says, explain the parable to me. And Jesus responds, so you're still not getting it. Um, what's he, he's still not getting the difference, it seems, between God's commandments and man's traditions. Um, he's still not quite getting the, the one word in Jesus' explanation, which is the most earth-shattering and possibly to the Pharisees annoying, is that for out of the heart comes evil thoughts. It's thoughts, it's not actions. It's not a checklist of all the things that have been done. It's all the evil thoughts that have come out of the heart. That's, That's a huge difference. I think Matthew gets away with one word here rather than a short discussion because in Matthew chapter 5, which of course we've already read, he kind of assumes we read his book starting at the beginning and working through and right now we're dead in the center. So Matthew is assuming that we read his chapter which was all about um, murder. If you hate someone, if you are angry with someone, you're basically already committing murder in your thoughts. 
So he, and the same with lust. He, he's, he's basically saying that the uh, adultery just starts with thoughts. And if, if that is all it takes to be defiled, what hope do we have? By the time we're getting down to things like slander, in, in fact, even, even being angry and calling someone a fool is effectively doing as much in God's eyes as the act of slander or murder is. So, Th that, was, that was definitely a message of Jesus and still the disciples as well as the Pharisees were missing the forest for the trees. And that's it. That's our revelation from this passage is that there's really very little we can do about um, being defiled because none of us can claim that we have never had thoughts that exceeded these kind of limitations. And the idea of measuring, creating a project management for our spirituality where we can create project goals and measure how well we're doing kind of falls apart because there's not, um, there's not much we can do to measure success when the, the simple measure that's been explained is that we're all doing things which are defiling us. But I thought that would be a little bit um, unsatisfactory to end because we're in the middle of Matthew. We haven't got to the death and resurrection. We haven't got to all the good news that comes later, which is an important response to this difficult uh, statement that Jesus has made a couple of times in Matthew's gospel already. Another thing to notice is that the danger of creating uh, traditions and wrapping them around commandments is that this is in danger of not ending well. We are creating ways to defile ourselves as the Pharisees were shown to with the way they, they tried to find out, okay, how do, we, how do we implement this honor your father and mother? That's a good question. What does it mean to honor your father and mother? But by turning it into a measurement system, they end up creating a way to defile themselves by ignoring and obscuring the original commandment. So, rather than ending there, what else would the audience have already been very familiar with? And one of the things they would have been very familiar with would be psalms. They're, they're a nice size. You can memorize one psalm at a time. And one of the psalms that really comes to mind because it is dealing specifically with the heart is one by David who is one of the best um, candidates for 
expertise in many of the boxes that we had in the list of evil thoughts with the murder, adultery, I don't know exactly what he did for slander and so on, but I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure he, he knows. Um, and these were actions, they were not just thoughts. So David, who is so often a good example of a, uh, of a messianic uh, king, has to deal with his defilement. So Psalm 51 is one of the Psalms which most strongly deals with the source. And David is in the Old Testament, so he's not heard of this Jesus and his teaching, is already hundreds of years earlier going to purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Be clear that David is not petitioning God for soap. He's not looking for something that he can do to himself to fix the problem in his heart. He knows the problem is in his heart. And he's asking God to do something about it, not himself recognizing that God cleans hearts, not us. So I forgot to tell the worship team. So five minutes ago, if you could start coming up. <laughs> so so anyway, in, in conclusion, this is this is the um, this is the part of the, the parable which isn't in the parable, but I think I can very confidently say that a large number of the people listening to uh, Matthew or listening to the original uh, event that Matthew was describing would have been very familiar with this, this passage. And the only other one which I, oh no, I have it here. In, in the gospel era, once the gospel has been revealed, uh, John records in one of his letters, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sins. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this is, this is the conclusion of the parable, which tells us that defilement is unavoidable. But uh, God in the Old Testament had already put into uh, the minds and hearts of the, um, the kings and the prophets that there was a way out of this. And the gospel of Jesus and the teaching of the apostles made it much clearer that uh, despite the bad news, there's much better good news.